Welcome to The Great Unlearn. Join me, your host, Cal, as we dive deep into understanding and unlearning the programming within us. Let's uncover your inner truth for a life with newfound purpose and freedom. Get ready to question it all in The Great Unlearn. Foundationally, young men are really in decline. There are less men that are sexually active between the ages of 18 and 29 right now. There are less men graduating college. There are less men in the workforce. And there is the highest rate of men living at home than ever before. But I think that we actually just need to bring grounded, healthy, masculine energy back into our culture. And how we do that is we bring it back into the conversations. We bring it back into the systems where young men are growing up. In the book, I talk about what's called the one rule of men. You don't talk about what it's like to be a man. And that was one of the things that I had bought into. I had to start to break that rule and just talk to the guys in my life and say, listen, this is what's been going on. This is where I've been struggling. It started to not only empower me, but disenfranchise the beliefs that had led me down the path of self-destruction and self-sabotage. When we start to drop these facades, particularly with the people that we're closest to, first of all, it just feels good because it gets it out into the open. It gives others permission to really open up about what they're going through. I told one of my best friends that I'd known for quite a few years what had been going on behind the scenes, he paused and he got very emotional and he proceeded to tell me that he had been struggling with depression and it had gotten so bad that he had tried to end his life six weeks before this conversation. I knew so much about this man except for the deepest part of him and vice versa. And I just started to see that in so many of my male relationships that they were just the surface level conversation that was happening and I didn't want that anymore. Connor Beaton, welcome to The Great Unlearn. Thank you so much for having me here. Yeah, you're on a bit of a podcast tour um, promoting your new book. I am. Yeah, it's uh, it's a pretty cool thing. It's like the thing that you do when you write a book nowadays, right? You don't go on traditional media. You do the podcasting thing. It's much better, much better and much more fun because you get to meet cool people like yourself. So that's it's great. Well, it's funny. I uh, I'm just finishing up my own book and... I've, I've reached out to a few friends who've done books in the past. And one of them who's been really successful with it was, was really pushing that traditional, you got to go on all these morning shows, you got to do this, got to do that. I was like, okay, God, this seems like a lot of work. And then I talked to, you know, uh, another friend who's kind of more in the space right now. He's like, no, bro, you're just going on podcasts. Yeah. Yeah. There's, and there's like a, you know, I think that the the mainstream shows, like the morning shows and stuff like that, they can help with certain aspects of it in terms of like, you know, the New York Times bestselling list, for example, I think they require you to have a certain amount of media, um, like mainstream media in order to be eligible to even get onto the list. So it's not just about book sales, which is a very interesting thing. You I have to like that, gamify yeah. the list in some way. But yeah, so, but podcasts are where it's at, man. You know, that's, that's it. You get to have cool conversations. It's long form. Uh, you can go a little bit deeper than you normally can in the, in the sort of mainstream media conversations. Yeah. They're more snippets, right. And in, in your, in, which is, you know, you have your own podcast, um, called man talks. That's right. Yeah. The man talk show. Yeah. And then you, I mean, it came out of the program that you started yeah. by the same name, right? Yeah. I was actually, I've been running the podcast now for like seven years and it's really started to take off in like the last year, like last year we, doubled our size and all that kind of stuff. Um, 
And I didn't really want to start a podcast in the beginning, but a guy that worked with me years ago was a podcast fanatic. And he's like, you got to start a podcast. You got to start a podcast. And I was like, I don't even listen to podcasts. Like, why the hell would I do that? And, uh, but you know, it's one of those things where you hire people that know better than you, you know? And so I just, I listened and I was like, okay, sure. Like, let's give this a try. And then I became uh, hooked on it. Just having these really wonderful conversations. I mean, I've talked to astrophysicists and cosmologists and, you know, people that were eligible for Nobel Prizes and some of the top psychologists and professors at Stanford and Harvard. I mean, it's, it's led to a kind of education, you know, for myself, which has been beautiful because I, this is how I learn. I think it's how a lot of us learn, you know, this, this art of sitting down with experts and masters and sort of learning from them versus this very academic approach that we've taken in our, in our society of, you know, just memorize shit and then regurgitate it versus sitting down with people who have spent a lifetime on something and being able to get wisdom and knowledge from them. Yeah. And you take that, right. And then you go have your own experience with it to see what part of it really sticks with you. And yeah, yeah. it's a much different way. It's much more approachable for things, especially with some of the guests that you just shared. It's seems so heady and, and outside of, you know, for me, my comfort zone, but the way those conversations go, you start to pull little nuggets that allow you to kind of follow those kind of breadcrumbs. Yeah. And I've always been a like deeply curious person. And so I can sit with most anybody and be curious enough to just, you know, extract some kind of cool story or, you know, insight into their, their life or their, you know, their area of expertise in a way that I think is engaging. And so, yeah, it's been, it's been a blast, man. It's been a blast and getting to come on other people's shows. I think, you know, I've done, I don't know, 60, 70 interviews now in the last like two months and getting insight into how other people interview is also such a craft and skill of its own. You know, people that are really good at interviewing, um, there's so much to learn there and, and there's an artistry in, in that as well, I think. And so, yeah, it's been awesome. Yeah. What do you attribute the, the bump in audience size? I, I think a couple things like one, so we've never done any traditional marketing. I've never paid a dollar for advertising for the show before. Um, one, I think I started to get more intentional with the guests that I was having on because for a little while, it was kind of like anybody that I was just interested in talking to and was curious about. And that kind of cast a very wide net. And then I started to narrow it down into, okay, let's talk to psychologists and evolutionary psychologists and, you know, the top therapists and, um, and really talk about and explore the depths of how do we as men, because the show's about men and for men, uh, how do we as men get the most out of ourselves? And so when I really started to sort of niche down into something specific, uh, that's when it seemed to, to really start to grow. And then so that's one part. And then secondly, just doing this actually, which was going on other people's shows. And I think you know, people started to come back to my show because they were curious about you know, me and my work. And, um, and so I think those two things really helped. Um, and then I think the final thing is word of mouth. Like I just, 
One of the things I learned when I started Man Talks in the very beginning is we were putting on these small events. And the very first one was in this, like, you know, this investment company's brick and mortar <laughs> store, yeah. right? Like shop. Uh, and I was putting on this event and the, the whole concept behind Man Talks was I was going to bring in three or four guys and they were going to tell their life story. They had 20 minutes to tell their life story as if they were going to die the next day. And so they had to share sort of their three defining moments in life or two defining moments in life and the, and the lesson that they wanted to leave the world with out of those defining moments. And, you know, the first event we had like 50 people there, right? It was, I, and I told everybody about it. I tried to get everybody out. Yeah. Uh, and, but it was just so powerful that people started to tell other people. And I realized that. And then, you know, at the end of every event, I said, if, if you just do one thing after this event, it's going to tell one person about what you learned here. And that became something where suddenly we were doing like 300 people a month were coming out to the events and 400 people a month were coming out to the events. And then I popped it up in different cities around North America and same, same thing. And so I think with the podcast, you know, I've just really encouraged people to what I call man it forward, right? Man it forward, like share this, you know, share this conversation with somebody that you know needs it because sometimes these dialogues hold in them um, keys to self-understanding that, that people are really searching for. Uh, or, or they're just cool ideas, you know, in a, in a time where there's just so much chaos. So I, I think those are the three things, like really just encouraging people to, to share um, is something that's so valuable because, we're, you know, human recommendation is still <laughs> the most valuable testimony, right? It's like if you go on Yelp and there's, you know, there's 400 reviews that are like, this is the most amazing place, but your buddy is like, that place is garbage. Do not go there. Yeah. You're probably not going to go there. Yeah. Right. And so we still really value um, other people's perspective, especially people around us. And so I've, I've really encouraged my audience to just, you know, just like share with your you know, share with your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your buddy, or, you know, if you, if you think that there's somebody in your life that's going to benefit from this conversation, then send it to them. And, um, and that's, that's really, really worked well. Yeah. And it's a, it's a simple ask. And I'm guessing that you, you have a really, um, deft way of articulating it. So it doesn't feel like a kind of sales pitch. It's like, look, if there's something, anything here that's resonant, yeah. just share it. Yeah. And, I, and I, I do want to bring up one point, even though it's called man talks and you kind of touch on it there, your boyfriend, or like it's, yeah, it's for men, but it's also a great guide for women to understand what the fuck it means to be a dude in the stuff that, that we really struggle with. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of women are trying to make sense of men in our modern culture because it's men and masculinity within our culture has become more vague. Um, less valued, I think, within our culture. Uh, men have changed quite a bit. And so I think women are trying to make sense of like, what are men going through? You know, I think that, I think the women that are, that are trying, that are curious and that have empathy and compassion are generally trying to figure out like, what are men going through in our culture right now? And there's not a lot of spaces or places that are talking about that in a way that, you know, isn't hyper politicized or, it has a very specific religious undercurrent to it. And so to have a nonpartisan, non-religious um, take on, on what's happening with men within our culture 
Uh, and because I talk with men, you know, that are, that are experts, but I also do these live sessions where I'll work with men and, and put it out there. And so they're, they're anonymous guests, um, men that apply to, to work with me. And so I think it gives insight into what men's work can look like. Um, and I think that helps a lot of men understand themselves understand their own process, but I think it also helps a lot of women understand like, oh, interesting. Like that's not what I would have felt if that thing happened with my dad or with my brother or with my you know, partner or whatever it is. And so I think that it's a good place for women to also come to learn about men. Yeah. Um, I want to back up just a little bit. As I was reading a little bit more about your story, I saw that uh, at, at some point you we're living in your car. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. Like how, how did, how did that come to be? Uh, so the, the short version of it is I, I bottomed out, you know, I, I bottomed out and I had this internal notion and unconscious story that I think a lot of us as men have that nothing in my life was going to change until everything sort of fell apart. And I think in, in some ways it's because we lack initiation as, as men in our culture. And so the, when we lack initiation, we, we sort of cross this threshold from being a boy to being an adolescent to being a man. But there's no real demarcation between I'm a boy and I'm a man now. And so a lot of us, um, myself included, we start to create these pseudo initiations. We start to create these um, these self-inflicted initiations where everything is stripped away from us and we create an environment where we are powerless, where we need to sort of dig ourselves back out of this hole. And we, we do that because in some ways we're trying to reconcile with our own sense of power and we're trying to reconcile with, can I go through an incredibly hard time? And come out the other side stronger, more courageous, more whole, more capable, more competent, more, more able to actually contribute to society. And so for me, what it looked like was I was completely out of integrity, right? I was lying. I was cheating in my relationships. I was abusing substances. Um, I had a very bad problem with pornography and no one knew what was going on. Like just no one knew. You know, on the, on the surface, if you had met me, uh, you know, it's like I was traveling the world. I had this cool career. I was a musician. I had this great relationship. I was riding the motorcycle. I had the five liter Mustang. Like, you know, I had the things that coming from Northern Alberta, (laughs) you know, I thought, uh, were the measure of success as a man. And, but behind the scenes, I was really struggling and suffering. And so all of those things fell apart and they all fell apart at once you know, girlfriend found out that I was, that I had been cheating for a long time and my career came to a halt and I was questioning whether or not I wanted to. What were you doing at that, at that time? I was a classical singer. So I was traveling the world. I was singing opera essentially. Um, and so all that came to a halt and, and I had so much shame, but also this sense of, I need to figure this out by myself. Um, and this stubbornness that I didn't want to, tell anybody. I didn't want anybody to know. And I was still caught in this 
false sense of like, can I talk my way out of this? <laughs> you know, like, mm-hmm. like, please, can I just talk my way out of this shit show that I've created? Um, which I couldn't obviously, you know, and there was a reason for that, but I moved all my stuff into storage and I just lived out of the back of my car for a few weeks because I didn't want people to know what was going on. And I was trying to rationalize how I could get myself out of the problem. And, you know, within two days living in the back of my car, I realized very quickly that that was not going to be possible. And so there was a kind of reckoning, you know, there was a kind of, again, pseudo initiation into how do I actually want to handle this? You know, how do I actually want to show up in life? Who do I actually want to be? Because this isn't working. And I was, you know, fortunate enough to have an older mentor in my life who was in his early seventies named Bernard. And I had a conversation with him where I sort of told him what was going on, not the full extent of it, but, you know, just that I'd been living in the back of my car and there was some stuff that had transpired. And he invited me over to his place and, you know, I went and sat down and had a few hour conversation with him. And that would turn into a two and a half year apprenticeship where he sort of took me under his wing and he was well-versed in Jungian psychology and cognitive behavioral therapy and Buddhism and Zen and Taoism. Bro, it's quite the mentor. Yeah. And so this like little French Canadian Yoda showed up in my life, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and, and really altered the trajectory of where I was going. So, yeah. So that's why I was in the car and, you know, living in the back of my car. And that's, it sort of led me on this path that I've been on ever since. Um, so, yeah. damn yeah what did climbing out of that hole look like oh what were some of the steps the maybe the real simple steps in the beginning that started to shift things for you what gave you hope besides maybe how bernard showed up you know i started to because he was so um into jungian psychology and to carl jung and his work I started to read a lot about the shadow and archetypes and all of these pieces. And, and one of the things that really hit me is Jung talked about the first step in any therapeutic process and the first step in any religious or spiritual process is some form of confession, some form of admission. And that was the part that I, I really disliked, you know, and I had really been avoiding for a very long time, like just admitting that things behind the scenes in my life weren't going well. And, and I'm, I'm going to guess again, just because I know a little bit about your story is, is part of that originated from you wanting to be a good guy and be liked and yeah. the external validation. And if, if you show that side, people won't like me, I'll be a fraud. I'll be all those things. And there's, it's so fragile, that ego part of, totally. of what we develop. Yeah. I resonate with that, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I had, I had built up this persona of being this nice guy, you know, that when I, and I think that this, it's part of the challenge that comes with the modern, you know, cultural narrative and societal narrative that says to men, in order to be a good man, you have to be nice. And if you're not nice, you're not a good man. And that's, you know, it's very baked into our culture, especially if you live in, you know, more, um, urban areas, you know, more liberal areas. That's, it's very prominent. And so I had done everything to make sure that I was just a good guy, you know, and that people liked me and that I was nice and that I didn't, 
piss people off. Um, and it really had backfired, you know, because I had, I had to separate from these parts of myself, my assertiveness, you know, my anger, um, you know, different parts of my desires. And that's just not, it's not functional, right? It's not operating from a whole place. So, you know, the first thing that I had to do was to start to admit what was going on, plain and simple. And in, in the book, I talk about what's called the one rule of men, because I started to see it in so many of the men that were in my life, which was the one rule of men is like fight club, right? You know, in, in fight club, there's one rule yeah. and so you don't talk about fight club, yeah. right? Like that's it. Yeah. And the, you know, fight club is just a, it's a sort of like a deconstruction of masculinity, right? It's a, it's a thesis on modern masculinity in a really beautiful way. Um, but the one rule of men is you don't talk about what it's like to be a man who is struggling or suffering. And, and many of us buy into that. And that was one of the things that I had bought into. Don't talk about where you feel weak, you feel insecure, things are going wrong. Uh, but if you do talk about it, just complain, you know, don't actually do it in a way that's generative or actually helpful. And so I had to start to break that rule and just talk to the guys in my life and say, listen, this is what's been going on. You know, this is where I've been struggling. Uh, this is where things haven't been going well. This is where I've been out of integrity. And in doing that, it had this wonderful effect where it started to not only empower me, but disenfranchise the beliefs that had led me down the path of self-destruction and self-sabotage. Um, because in many ways, you have to have a kind of bold courage and, uh, and willingness to really face your, the depths of your fear. Because there's nothing like telling people, you know, I've been lying or I've been cheating or I've been out of control or, you know, here's, here's what I've been doing that's you know, been harmful to my relationship or whatever it is. Uh, or here's where I'm struggling, you know, there's nothing like admitting those things uh, to the people that we love, because there's oftentimes a deep fear of what if I then don't belong with these people, mm. right? What if they reject me? What if they, what if they see me in the way that I see myself, right? Because I thought I was a piece of shit. I thought I was broken. And so, so if I admit that these things are going on, what if they judge me in the way that I judge myself? And I think that's the conundrum and the paradox that all of us are faced with when we're carrying something, whether it's grief from a divorce or the death of a parent and we don't know how to deal with it or whatever it is. There's this deep fear of what if I tell somebody who I love, who I admire, who I respect, and they, and they reject me or they judge me in the same way that I've been rejecting myself. Um, so that, that was really one of the first fundamental steps that I had to take. And when I did it, you know, there's this saying that vulnerability begets vulnerability. When I did it, I, I was, I truly was shocked. And it's maybe, it seems like the most obvious thing now, but, but, you know, the men in my life that I started to open up to and talk to, they really, um, you know, they really mirrored it back and they started to be honest and transparent about where they were struggling in life and the problems that they were dealing with. And, you know, the, challenges in their relationship, the challenges in their business that I just didn't know about, you know? And so the, the facade that had lived between us as friends, you know, as brothers started to drop and 
the real versions of us as men started to appear. And, you know, it was in this one conversation and I, I wrote about it in the book and I'll, I'll pause because I feel like I've said it a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was in this one conversation where I told one of my you know, best friends that I'd known for quite a few years what had been going on behind the scenes and just sort of laid it all out. And he, he paused and got very emotional and he thanked me for being so honest with him. And he proceeded to tell me that he had been struggling with depression and it had gotten so bad that he had tried to end his life about six weeks before this conversation. And, you know, in that moment, I was really sort of dumbstruck by the fact that I thought I knew everything about this guy. You know, I liked the women. I knew that like the women that he liked to date. I knew the type of scotch he liked to drink, the TV shows he liked to watch, where he liked to go and get food. Like I knew so much about this man, except for the deepest part of him and what he was really dealing with and vice versa. And I just started to see that in so many of my male relationships that they were just the surface level conversation that was happening that really lacked depth and substance. And I didn't want that anymore, you know, and that became the, the sort of um, fuel for me to start man talks. And that, that wouldn't happen for years later, you know, five or six years later, but that conversation, my rock bottom became the, the sort of fuel for me to do something about that later. Oh, that's beautiful. That was, yeah, you did say a lot and it was all really important. Um, I think one of the, the gifts is that when you, when we, right, when we share these stories, particularly as men, it opens up others to be honest about what's going on, lets them know, like, look, there may be this way you see me and that I've got everything figured out and my life is great, but this is actually what's going on. And I know for me, starting the podcast was a, was very cathartic because I felt like people just didn't understand who I was Mm. and I didn't want to be perceived as a fraud. Um, but I, and I also didn't want to do it for sympathy, but it was like, look, like I'm just as fucked up as everybody else. And here's, here are the ways that I'm sharing that, you know, for today, this is what's coming up and this is where I'm really struggling. And, um, this is where I don't have it figured out. And these are the things that I still stumble over time and again. And I do, I love, I love the sharing because it, it did, I guess, you know, this admission, this confession, first of all, it just feels good because it gets it out into the open. But then it does. I think the beauty of it is it, it gives others permission to, to really open up about what they're going through. Yeah. When, when you say that you felt like people didn't know you, I can't remember exactly how you said that. What did you mean by that? That they, that they saw the, a sort of like image of you or? Yeah. Like, you know, let's say five, six years ago. Or, you know, I started the podcast three years ago. So as I was, you know, kind of getting ready to launch this thing. Here I was, I retired from trading at 41, you know, have done really well financially, really fit in good shape, take care of myself, have a beautiful wife, three awesome kids, like multiple boxes checked. Mm. And in those ways, it just felt like, yeah, but I'm the shit that I'm still struggle with. Like, yeah, so those things are great it's not it. And, um, 
yeah, maybe, maybe there was a part of me that wanted people like that. That was my way to reach out and say, look, I, I need help too. Mm -hmm. (sighs) Yeah. That was kind of my cry for help in getting honest with people just so they could see me more of the, the whole me. Um, and don't get me wrong. Like they saw those things for a long time because that was a, maybe an unconscious choice for me to put up those different masks. So people saw the best version of me. Um, so that I was a good guy that I was likable, that people wanted to be like that. Um, but you know, when you, when you carry that for so long, it becomes really burdensome. And then to start to let go of those different layers, it allowed, it allowed me to, to really start to understand who I am and, and why I'm here and start to get really curious about what is my greater purpose. It's not for um, attaining financial wealth. It's not for um, being really physically fit. Those things are great, you know, when you're in true alignment with them, but when they're just a different identity that I'm hiding behind, it's, it becomes very confusing about who, who I really am. And I still dip back into that, you know, there are seasons where I feel like I'm really showing up as me. And then there are seasons where I'm not feeling great about me. And so the, those, those walls come up. Um, and it's just being aware of that now when I wasn't in the past is obviously a huge step. And then, then the question is, okay, so what am I willing to do about that? Um, so it's, it's been very, very interesting in that. And, uh, and I would say one of the things that you said, one of the many things you said that I really love, but when we start to drop these facades, even particularly with the people that we're closest to, and we can get to a much deeper relationship. You know, I was sharing with you before we get on that I have a group of men that come, come out here to Spicewood once a week to, to be together. And it involves ping pong and pool and making music together. But invariably every time there are pockets of us that are together Mm. sharing the deepest shit. And um, it's, it's such a safe space to go there. And, you know, I remember one time in particular, there were probably five or six of us in the kitchen and someone shared something that was coming up and it was just like, boom boom, boom. It just, the floodgates opened Mm -hmm. and we realized that we were all very much in the same season and it was really hard, Mm -hmm. but it felt reassuring that, um, and it had taken each of us, you know, we'd been carrying that for a while. So even with these, these men that I'm really close with, sometimes we're not ready to share and that's okay. Yeah. And then it's invariably once the first domino falls, Everyone's like, fuck, this is what I've been going through. And it's been a motherfucker. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think we, you know, historically we as men have sat around the fire, you know, and had 
conversations about what is happening in life. And there's a, there's a kind of sharing that happens within that space. And there's usually elderhood that is present to sort of guide the conversation. But I also think that, you know, we have gone through generations of being raised by men who thought that suppression equaled strength, masculine strength, male strength. And so the, the capacity that you had to just sort of stuff shit down <laughs> created this false sense of I'm strong, you know, this misinterpretation of what stoicism is actually supposed to be, mm. right? Stoicism is not an elimination of your emotions. It's a domestication of them. It's a, it's a relationship building with them. It's that you actually build a, a foundational relationship with your own emotional body and you have a mastery with it. But you know, we've sort of taken stoicism and morphed it into something that like you need to control your emotions. No, that's not it. You'll, that'll never work. It'll just never work. <laughs> right. And if you try and eliminate them, that'll never work either. Right. You <laughs> yeah. know? So yeah, I mean, I think I love what you're saying. Cause I think, you know, one of the reasons why, and one of the things that I've been talking about a lot as I've gone on this podcast tour is like men, especially young men right now are really in decline. You know, foundationally, young men are really in decline. There are less men that are sexually active between the ages of 18 and 29 right now. There are less men graduating college. There are less men in the workforce. And there is the highest rate of men living at home than ever before, right? And, and we could talk about the data of that. We can talk about why those things are happening, um, right? One in four kids are going to grow up without a father in the household. Um, if you're a young boy and you get into the education system, the likelihood of you seeing a male teacher or role model is very fucking small, right? 2% of all kindergarten teachers in, in America are male, 2%, right? Wow. And then in the education system as a whole, it's only 32% of teachers that are male and that's declining. And then if you, if, you know, if you don't have a male teacher, you just don't see what it looks like to, to be a man within culture and society. Right. So if you don't have a father at home or a father figure, you don't see a man within uh, the education system modeling what that looks like. You literally can go through the majority of your developmental existence as a boy going into manhood and not see the modeling of a healthy male role model. And we as men, we learn by modeling. We, we, we learn by you know, what does our father do with his anger? How does he treat women, right? So we learn how to become men by sort of metabolizing what we see outside of ourselves. And there's just this vacuum, you know, this huge vacancy of male modeling within our culture. And I, I think that part of the, you know, part of the thing that I think is starting to enter into the mainstream conversation is the decline of young men. You know, it's like, only 42 or 43% of college graduates this year will be male and the rest are all female. So that's inverse from 1960 or 1970, where there's this, there was this huge um, sort of in, inequality of women that were graduating from college. Now it's the opposite, right? So it's actually switched. So, you know, I think that, I think that a lot of, I think that a lot of young men are, struggling to see even what it looks like to be a man who can deal with his own shit, you know, who can deal with his problems. And I think it's why people like, you know, David Goggins, 
has become so popular. He's willing to talk about, you know, his trauma and what he experienced in life. I think it's why Jordan Peterson, you know, became so popular. He's basically like the, the, the dad of the internet, whether you like him or hate him, you know, he's just the, he's the archetype of the father. I think he positioned himself like that very specifically because he reckon, recognized in a lot of ways that there's just this massive cohort of young men who are directionless, lacking in any kind of father figure or father energy in their life, lacking in any kind of male modeling in their life, and surrounded by young boys who are experiencing the exact same thing. And it's like, well, that just creates anarchy. You know, like young boys without any kind of, you know, again, like the data shows, the research shows that the role of a father specifically for the young boys is to help them temper their relationship with risk and aggression. You know, I see this in my boy, he's two years old and he's going through this phase right now where he loves to throw himself off the couch and Mm -hmm. slam shit into the floor and, you know, run across the kitchen and, you know, slam his tricycle into the wall of my brand new house and, (laughs) and fuck up the baseboard that I'm like, what are you doing? You know, but it's just, it's, I think, I think when we, well, maybe that's a separate piece, but I think that we actually just need to bring grounded, healthy, masculine energy back into our culture and how we do that is we, we, we bring it back into the conversations. We bring it back into the systems where young men are growing up, right? Education systems, healthcare systems, et cetera. But we bring, we bring healthy male modeling back into parenting. And I think that that is one of the most important things that, that we can do for young men because I, I think there's just a generation of young men who, who are missing that and, and who, this is the last thing I'll say, who look out at, the modern narrative that's being uh, sort of projected out across, you know, Western society and are met with this notion that men aren't needed. So you're not needed in society. And so what do we see? We see young men checking out from society almost entirely. And I think that that's both dangerous and our responsibility to address, you know? And so yeah. Thanks. Thanks for coming to my TED talk. <laughs> uh, so no, you're hitting on so many, on a- so many important things. And I'm a, you know, a dad of, I guess, one teenage boy. My, my other son is 20, but he's, you know, I will still call him a teenager for, for argument's sake. You know, one of the, the real gifts of this men's group that I have is that my 17 year old often comes out here. Mm. And so he's, you know, I do the best I can at home to model uh, but he's around these other men. He gets to have his different experience with them. And it's been really amazing to watch him, uh, who he's drawn to and the conversations that he's willing to have. And, mm-hmm. you know, it gives him a, a great understanding of the, the others that he's, you know, his peers that he's hanging out, out with. And he just realizes on some level they're dipshits. Yeah good enough guys, but he's like, I can't have like real conversations with him. And so he's able to explore these things and, and hopefully he's able to, you know, share that with, with these boys on some level. But, you know, these, these young men, unfortunately, a lot of them aren't turning to, or enough of them aren't turning to someone like Jordan Peterson. And right, whether you agree with his 
way or not, I happen to really love what he says because there's, there's just a lot of integrity in what he, in a lot of uh, accountability mm-hmm. and self-responsibility, which I think is really lacking today. They're turning to guys like Andrew Tate, who I know very little about except kind of maybe the, the big picture stuff. And that's troubling, mm. you know? So it was like, they're going to go somewhere to get their mail fix. Absolutely. And um, when you have someone like Andrew Tate, who's super popular and controversial, I mean, that's exciting to explore that. And he paints his own picture as we all do of, of kind of what our message is. But those are the areas where, you know, when we don't have these men in our life, I, you know, as you were talking about the, the, um, the ratio of, stu- of uh, teachers, male to female, I happen to have, I feel like a lot of men teachers in my mm-hmm. life. And I mean, granted that was 30 plus years ago, but it was different than as, as I'm sure the stats would show. And I also grew up playing sports. So I was often around other males than my dad. Um, you know, and my dad was, it's so funny. One of the things I wanted to ask you about actually is, is as you've become a dad, how, how is it maybe has it recontextualized your relationship with your dad? And like, are you, are you able to pull in? um, Well, the reason I wanted to ask is because when I became a dad and for a long time, I didn't want to be like my dad. Mm -hmm. Um, I had this idea of, of someone who didn't love the way I love my kids show affection and, you know, let's say vulnerability. Uh, and so I ended up kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until more recently that I had a deep appreciation for the way he showed up and the way he showed love and the best way he could and, and, and what that in turn gave me. Yeah. Um, and so I'm curious, kind of the state of being a dad, maybe what you thought it was going to be like and, and where you find yourself today. Yeah, I mean, I certainly underestimated how brutal sleep deprivation is. <laughs> you know, it's like uh, it's like being back in the clubbing days, except there's no rest, and it's like every fucking night. You know, uh, but all jokes aside, uh, you know, one of the things that I found this quote by Nietzsche, and I'm going to summarize it. I'm not going to get it verbatim, but it, essentially, it was like the the shadow of the father will always be revealed in the son. So the secrets of the father will be revealed in the son. And so one of the things that I've become very aware of, you know, I've been working with men for a decade. I've worked with tens of thousands of guys around the world. And one of the things that I've found cross-culturally is that when, regardless of our relationship to our father, most of us take two paths, one of two paths, which is the way of repetition or the way of opposition. Fuck him. I'm never going to be like him. Hmm. Right. Or he was amazing. I want to be just like him. Right. How do I, how do I be like him? How do I fill his shoes? You know, he was a great man. How do I step into that? And both of those pathways often don't leave us individuating, becoming the free sovereign men that hopefully our fathers want us to be. You know, and so 
I, I certainly for a while chose the path of trying to repeat and unconsciously repeating some of the stuff that my dad did. You know, my, my parents got divorced when I was three. They both remarried other people. They both had a daughter. They both had a son. And so I grew up between these two identical family systems and bounced back and forth where my sisters were the same age. My brothers were the same no age. No shit. My parents were the same age, but it was like two different family systems. Wow. But the, the strange part was, and this probably says a lot about me, is that all of, my, all of them are polar opposites. Like my sisters could not be more different. My dad and my stepdad could not be more different. My mom and my stepmom could not be more different. Like they are just wholly different people. Uh, and so I really grew up getting curious about like the differences between people, you know? Um, and I saw the differences between my dad and my stepdad, but I, you know, I sort of was always chasing and pursuing my father. And because he wasn't around, you know, as much as I wanted him to be as a boy, it left this vacancy in me that I just didn't get. You know, I remember nights when I was five, six, seven, eight years old of just, you know, crying and being inconsolable because I just didn't understand as a young boy, why my dad wasn't there. And this is when you're with your mom yeah. or even when you were with him? Most of the time when I was with my mom. Okay. Yeah. Cause I grew up with her. She had um, primary custody over me and then I would see my dad once or twice a month. Okay. And you know, he was loving, he was kind, he was there, but I think we often underestimate the, the like real desire that you, and, and need that a young boy has for his father. Right. And I'll just say one thing about like, you know, research data to back this up. When you look at a single parent household um, and you look at a single mother raising children, statistically speaking, it doesn't have that negative of an impact on young girls. Their, their education, their grades don't really drop. You know, they, they don't become um, violent or, you know, drop out of school or those types of things. But when you look at the data about young boys that grow up in single parenthood uh, households where there's no father around, they really struggle. You know, they're much higher likelihood to drop out of school, like 10 times higher. So when you, maybe I'll just give a couple examples, like 88% of high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. Uh, 90, 90% of runaway children come from fatherless homes, right? And you can just go down the list and look at the data. And so, so there's really no argument or, or, or conversation around the impact that it has and, and specifically around young boys, that young boys have this yearning and desire to be around their fathers. And this was the same for me. You know, I like really wanted him to be around. And instead I had a stepfather, you know, who I was like, who are you and why are you here? And I don't understand what the fuck's going on. And so of course I did what every young boy does, which is I rebelled as hard as I possibly could. You know, I made sure that he knew that I did not like him and that I didn't want him there and that I wanted my dad to be there. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, I think my parents did the best that they could, you know, with the knowledge and the resources that they had. But it really left this kind of vacancy in me where I pursued him for a very long time and tried to understand him and understand why he left and 
And this is, this is often what we do as men when we, when we have been wounded in some way emotionally or even physically is that we try and ask the question, why did this happen? Instead of asking ourselves, what's the impact that's left on me? And so we can spend years and decades in search of why did this happen? Why did that trauma happen? Why did my dad leave? Why did she break up with me? Why did the divorce happen? Why did the miscarriage happen? And we can become enthralled with that question the entire time missing out on the impact that it's had on us emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually. And so eventually, you know, I came to a place where I realized that I had been in hot pursuit of trying to figure out why my father had left. And when I finally started to, to do the work internally of understanding the impact that it had on me, it opened up a lot of doors. You know, my life started to shift. My relationship started to change. And so to come back to your question, when my son was born, you know, I think I had done a tremendous amount of searching um, and self-discovery to heal my relationship with my father. And like I said, before we were recording, uh, I left out some detail of this, but the day we got home from the hospital, I had interviews with publishing houses for my book. And I had a couple of interviews uh, with them. And so after my son was born, I signed my, my book deal. And it was a very interesting piece because a big part of what I write about is the shadow of our father and actually stepping out of the shadow of our father, good, bad, ugly, whatever our relationship is like, so that we can move on our own sovereign path so we can take the wisdom and the lessons from that relationship. And so when my son was born, it was interesting because I could feel this very deep desire to share my boy with my father. And it was in the middle of the pandemic and my dad lives in Canada and we were in the United States. And so traveling across the border wasn't possible. And so it really hit that you know, reignited that part of me that was like, I want to share life with my dad, but he, like, he's just not here. And so I had to have a few conversations with him because even when the borders did open up, um, because of some differences and choices that, that he and I had made, he, he, didn't, he didn't come down for a little while. And so I had to have some very real conversations with him of like, I need you to show up, you know? And this feels very much like my upbringing and my childhood. And I was like, this is really hard. This is putting strain in our relationship because this is arguably one of the most important things that I've done in my life, you know, is have this child, like this is my son. And so it, I think in many ways, my boy opened up uh, a sort of deeper layer and a deeper chapter that forced me to have um, a different type of conversation with my father. And, you know, we had done a lot of work together and we've had many conversations over the years and, you know, I, I spent two and a half hours with him one time where I had 20 questions for him. You know, it's like, what do you want to do before you die? What are you afraid of happening before you die? And I asked him all these questions and we had this wonderful conversation and this, you know, this knowing started to emerge between the two of us. But having my son unlocked a lot of that. And I think it also got me very present to how different um, of a father I will be, you know, not in spite of my dad, not to repeat his patterns, but just because I've actually done the work to become my own man separate, separate from my stepfather and my father. 
And that is one of the most empowering things that, that emerged when my, when my son was born, um, that I have a really deep sense of gratitude for. And, and, and do you feel like your dad has shown up yeah. for your son? Yeah. Yeah. And he, I mean, he loves him, you know, he's yeah. obsessed. <laughs> yeah, He's obsessed with him. And, and, uh, you know, I think sometimes he's not quite sure what to do and what his role as a grandfather is, uh, cause it's very new for him. It's the first, his first grandchild. And so, but yeah, he, he really loves him and, you know, FaceTimes and, uh, my wife and I are going on a, on a trip here in May and my dad and my stepmom are going to come and watch, watch my boy for seven days, you know, for a full week. No shit. Yeah. Oh yeah. dude. So it's, yeah, it's, it's really wonderful. It's really wonderful. Well, let's get into the book a little bit. Sure. Um, yeah, let me grab it. I've got a fresh copy. So for everyone out there, it's called Men's Work, A Practical Guide to Face Your Darkness and Self-Sabotage and Find Freedom. Beautiful title. What, uh, what inspired you to write a book? Uh, I mean, a couple things. One, many of the men that I'd worked with had asked me for, for a kind of like a resource where I could put my framework into, into writing uh, for them to do it. That was one thing. Um, two, I think there was a, a bit of a, uh, a space within the market. Uh, you know, a lot of the books that are out there for men right now were written 20 years ago, right? David Data's book, yeah. Way of the Spirit of Man, was written 20 plus years ago. No More Mr. Nice Guy, 20 plus years ago. I Don't Want to Talk About It by Terry Real, 20 plus years ago, right? So you have all these sort of foundational books that are just very outdated. And what was interesting is that, you know, as I, because I get guys reach out to me all the time that are like, what resources, you know, what mm -hmm. books should I read? What books should I read? What books should I read? And I just started to get this like gut hit that was like, they should be reading my book. And, uh, you know, and one of the things that I started to see was that not a lot of the books that are out there for men are designed to give them tactical work to do. You know, it's like, how do you stop watching pornography? There's a whole section for that, you know, with very specific exercises that you can do. There's questions after every single chapter. So I tried to make it so that, you know, I could condense, like, instead of going to a therapist for six to 12 months, it's like, read this book and do the work that's inside of it. And you'll probably gain as much self-understanding as you do going to therapy. Um, part, of my, part of my belief is, you know, men's work is about training and, and not therapy that we're actually training ourselves to be more competent, more whole, more self-understanding. Uh, so those are, you know, and then lastly, I wanted to challenge myself. You know, I, I failed grade 12 English, um, but I've always loved writing and people have always sort of commented that I'm, I'm a good writer. And so I wanted to challenge myself in my creativity to do something that pushed my own edge because that's something that I talk about all the time. It's like, we need to live at our edge a little bit. And this was definitely an edge for me. And I had been uh, encouraging my wife to write a book for a long time. And hmm. one, one day in the conversation, she's like, you know, you keep telling me to write a book. Like, where's yours? It's like, all right, babe, touche. <laughs> and so I, so I got to it, you know, I, I got to it. And it was, I, I got told no so many times. 
Um, you know, I, I had calls with major publishing houses and heard the same thing from all of them, which was, we love you. We love your message. We love your platform. We love the idea, but men don't buy books. And so it's a no. And that kind of ignited this fire under me. That was like, okay, now I really, yeah. now I really want to do this, you know? And um, yeah. And so we've, we've proven them wrong already. That's awesome. Now who started their book first? You or your wife? I, I did. Yeah. You did. Yeah. I started the process first and uh, got, got the agent, put the proposal together, um, started talking to publishing houses. And then uh, after I had signed my book deal, uh, my wife had started sort of coming out of the, the birthing portal. Right. I think our son was like six months old. And she's like, maybe I can talk to your agent. You know, like she started to get curious. I was like, okay, great. Um, it was, it was awesome. It was wonderful. And before we get a little deeper in your book, I want to give your, your wife's book a shout out. Can you share the name of it again and, and kind of what it's about? Yeah. So hers is called the origins of you. And it is about how your, your family system creates the blueprint for the patterns that show up in your relationship and the five primary wounds that come out of our family system. And so basically how to undo those dysfunctional patterns that continue to show up in your relational communication or intimacy or whatever it might be. It's really, really, really powerful, really powerful book. Awesome. And what's her name? Vienna. Okay. Yeah, Vienna Farron. We'll, um, we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Awesome. Yeah. All right. So I'm just going to pick, I'm in the table of contents and I just, will, I mean, I've never done this before. I've got this like book the, here. The, the dart and, yeah. the, and the board, you know, like. Oh, this is beautiful. This is the one that stands out for me. Uh, embrace your anger. Uh-huh. It, and I'll share why it stands out for me. I had a, a recent realization. I spent almost 18 years um, as a trader on the floor of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange and the Board of Trade uh, in Chicago. And in that environment, there's a lot of emotion that is able to be expressed in a safe way, anger being one of them. You can pretty much get anything off your chest that you want and no one's going to take it personally. They may take it personally originally, but you know, it, everyone lets it go. Uh, and, and I realized in the 10 years since I left the trading floor, there's been a lot of uh, that stored up in me and I haven't felt uh, the safety to be able to express it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's something that I'm currently working on. And so I'd love for you to kind of dive into that as, as I'm guessing a lot of men have never had the, you know, the trading floor to express and maybe they had it on their sports team, but they're, you know, in, in everyday life, it's maybe not in the way that they understand or the way I understand it. It's not safe to share that with your partner or your kids. So how are you able to share this anger in a way that, you know, everyone doesn't freak out? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So there's a great um, quote by a poet that I deeply love and respect named David White. And he says that anger is the deepest form of care. Anger is the deepest form of care. And so, you know, anger can be the energy of protection, of showing that we care, of showing that we love, of protecting what's sacred to us. But it can also be the tool that's used to destroy the things that we love most. And there's a very fine line between those two things. And so, you know, we as men have to begin to look at 
what is my specific relationship to anger. You know, as a young man, I saw an example, and, and sometimes this comes back to the, you know, the father work oftentimes, right? Because we often learn as young boys, young men, how to express our anger based on the modeling of our parent, of our father. And so as a young man, I, I thought that anger was either something to be avoided, because I saw that in one of my fathers, or it was violent, you know, verbally, emotionally, and physically abusive. And so my relationship, my relationship to it was not good. <laughs> you know, it was like, I didn't want to express it. I didn't want especially women to see my anger. Um, but then I would go to bars and nightclubs in my late teens and early 20s and pick bar fights, you know, and beat the shit out of guys. And, and that obviously wasn't a healthy expression of that. Um, and so, and sometimes get my ass kicked. I also want to like put that in there. It's not like I, it's not like I won every single bar fight. I'm not like, you know, the Mike Tyson of bar fights. I don't want to come across like that. Um, but so we have to begin to understand what is my relationship to my anger? Is it something that I've disconnected from? Is it something that I've degraded and I don't see value in? Or is it something that I feel overpowered by and powerless to? You know, it, it can be many things for many men. So in, in the book, I talk about the different forms of anger, that there's implosive anger, there's explosive anger, and then, you know, there's a kind of sacred anger that we can work towards. And implosive and explosive are a little different. Implosive is when we try and like jump on the grenade, right? So we try and hold all of our anger in. We don't let it out. We don't, you know, tell other people that we're angry when our girlfriends or our wives say like, you're, you look angry. Like you look pissed off about something like, no, nah, no, nah, I'm good. I'm fine. Meanwhile, inside, we're like, mm, you know, <laughs> freaking out. <laughs> and so implosive anger is very common when it comes to a lot of modern guys, a lot of nice guys have implosive anger. And the challenge with implosive anger is that it gets directed towards us. So we, our internal dialogue, a lot of guys that have implosive anger, the way that they talk to themselves is very abusive, right? The fuck's wrong with me? I'm such a piece of shit. Like, why can't I just get this shit, right? Blah, 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 blah. So our inner dialogue and our inner critic becomes very vicious and, and abusive and violent. Explosive is where we feel a sense of powerlessness to our anger and it just sort of rules us and it takes over and we find ourselves yelling at people or threatening people or attacking their character, becoming louder, et cetera. Explosive anger can also be something where we have a sense of self-entitlement and righteousness, right? It's like, well, I deserve to be angry. I deserve to tell you you know, what's wrong with you and call you out and call you on your bullshit. And I'm just expressing my truth or, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever justification we use for that. Um, so that's explosive anger. And both of them are equally damaging and destructive in their own way. Now, how do we actually move towards embracing our anger? There's a couple things that we need to do. First and foremost, if you have implosive anger, you actually need to work towards expression of letting that anger have a little bit of a voice because the reality is, is that your anger is a marker for when boundaries have been crossed, right? And boundaries teach other people how to treat us. And so if you're trying to reinforce your boundaries by being explosive or you're trying to avoid hurting somebody by holding in your anger and not saying anything about when you're upset, you know, when your partner says something disrespectful or you feel hurt about something or whatever it is, then your anger never has a place at the table. 
<clears throat> so you're disempowered. So if you have implosive anger, we have to start to work towards expression, towards bringing that anger out. And a good way to do that is to just label, I'm, I'm feeling angry right now. And to practice that, and to, I would say to practice that with other men. This is the power of men's, men's work and men's groups specifically, is that it might be harder for you with your wife of 10 years or your girlfriend who's brand new to say, I feel really angry right now. That might feel like too much. But in a group of guys, it might be easier for you to say, you know what? I'm really angry about X, Y, and Z that's happening at work. So the first step for implosive is to actually just start to give voice to the truth about when you're angry. And the same thing is true with explosive. The first step is to give voice about when you're angry without directing, without saying, I'm angry and it's your fault. You're responsible for this, right? So step one, name that it's there. <clears throat> step two, say what you're actually feeling behind the anger. So the majority of the time, anger is going to be a secondary emotion. It will have shown up because you felt embarrassed, you felt ashamed, you felt disrespected, you felt hurt, you, you felt something before you got angry. And the anger is an attempt to express that other emotion that maybe feels even more threatening to admit. So say what you're actually feeling. You know what? I feel embarrassed that I forgot to you know, buy the chicken at the grocery store and I totally forgot. Right? Say what you're actually feeling. That's the next step. And then the, the third one is move from cognition to what I call the DFE, to your direct felt experience. Move from cognition to direct felt experience. So where most of us men get lost with our anger is we just stay in our thoughts. You know, we, we try and rationalize our way through an emotional problem, right? We like use rational math for emotional equations. And they're two different things. It's like trying to communicate in Chinese, but you're speaking German. It's just, it's not going to go well, right? So move into the direct felt experience. What does that anger feel like in your body? Where do you feel it? Where do you sense it? You know, do you feel heat in your belly? Do you feel like your hands, you know, want to move? Do you feel your feet wanting to move? And start to become more and more aware and more and more present to the actual sensory data and experience of anger itself. The majority of men don't have a problem with expressing anger or experiencing it. It's that they feel unsafe with it. It's that there's no real tolerance and self-trust to say, I can sit with this. So one of the things that I had to do um, that I found to be very helpful, and I'll pause here, was I created something called the fire meditation which was every time that I felt really angry, especially in my relationship, because this seems to be an access point for a lot of men where their anger just shows up naturally. Whenever I felt really angry, I would go and sit down and I would set a timer for three to five minutes and I would close my eyes and I would just breathe and feel into the sensations of the anger in the body. Because in order for other people to feel safe, and to trust us with our anger, we need to feel safe and trust ourselves with our anger, right? I wrote in the book, if you don't deal with your anger, the world will have to deal with it for you. Mm. So one of the best things that we can do is actually to build a tolerance for the experience of our anger so that it's not too much for us, so that we're not running away from it, that we actually take intentional time to sit and be with our anger when it's present. And in doing so, we begin to 
develop a relationship with it. And we begin to have a sense of trust that we can be with our own anger when it shows up. So in the moment when, you know, your wife, your girlfriend, your kid, or your boss or colleague says something and you feel that anger arising in the body, you have a context of, no, I, I know how to be with this experience. I know how to be with this emotion. This isn't too much. I don't need to shut down. I don't need to react from it and blow up because that's what most of us do, right? Most men, you, we use two, two ways of dealing with our anger. We try and shut down and stuff it down or we, we act from it. And we have to learn how to be with our, our anger and be present for it and have the tolerance for it and express it when necessary, but not because we're just letting that anger react out from us. So those are a couple of things that, that people can do real time in order to work, work with their anger. Oh, that's awesome. So what's the kind of, besides your own experience with this, what are, what are some of the things that have helped shape your, um, what you're sharing here in the book with specific, you know, regards to anger? Uh, I mean, the big one is, is Jungian psychology. Um, the, the book is sort of built on the foundation of shadow work, which is a concept that you talked about. Um, so that's, that's a pretty big piece. And then Gestalt, my current mentor, mentor and uh, man that I work with, he's also in his 70s. He's a Gestalt therapist. And Gestalt is really built off of this notion of wholeness, of inviting all the parts uh, in us that we maybe have discarded, don't like, don't want to be in relationship to bringing them back into our inner kingdom because we try as men, we try and exile the parts <laughs> of us that we don't. It's like, well, yeah. it's like, Oh, I don't like this character in my inner kingdom. How do I kill that part off? <laughs> you know, how do I, how do I banish that part? And, and it just empowers that part. You know, we, we start to have this inner civil war that goes on. And so the book really has a lot of, of tools. A lot of the exercises are based on Jungian, Jungian and Gestalt frameworks. Beautiful. I mean, that, that was a, a, a beautiful share. And um, I mean, that's just one small part of this book. I'm, I'm really excited to, to dive into it. And I'm, I'm thinking that that share is going to inspire many people to come out and, and do that as well, particularly men. But I do think there's so much in it for women to just try to, to understand, you know, what we, you know, what we're dealing with. Yeah. No. Yeah, I, I agree. I've had a lot of women writing me being like, I read your book. My husband makes so much more sense now. Yeah. <laughs> you know? We just want to understand each other. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Yeah. yeah. So how can people work with you? Are you still doing coaching? And Yeah. So I run some online groups. I do a lot of in-person live weekends. Um, my wife and I are doing some couples workshops, both live and digital. Uh, she's a marriage and family therapist and she's awesome. So best way is just mantalks.com. You can see everything there. Um, I don't do as much one-on-one. I'll usually do like intensives with men um, where they'll come out and work with me for a day or two, or I'll create some form of initiatory experience for them. Um, and then the mo- the rest of it is all small group work, like eight men or you know a weekend with a bunch of guys. So all on mantalks.com. And then you can follow you know, Instagram, I post every day and I try and answer messages and do all that jazz. So you can follow me at man talks on Instagram. Dude. Amazing. I'm so glad you're here in Austin to, to do this, you know, this tour. And I'm glad we got to do this really just awesome stuff, brother. Like really appreciate you. Likewise. Thanks so much for the conversation and 
and I uh, got some love from the dog beforehand. Oh, I mean, yeah, I've, I've, so. like, I've felt so welcomed in Austin. It's been really amazing. It's been really, really wonderful. Well, no one's been quite welcomed like that before. So that's, <laughs> that's on you. <laughs> well, thanks again. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, you bet. You've been listening to The Great Unlearn. For more information, check out the show notes or head over to thegreatunlearn.com for additional episodes and information regarding events, retreats, and the TGU store. If you like what you heard today, please click subscribe and share this with friends who might enjoy our platform. Don't forget to leave that five-star rating and review as it really helps us spread the love and unlearning. You can find me on Instagram at cal.callahan and on YouTube under The Great Unlearn. Thanks for listening to The Great Unlearn, and we'll talk soon. No, no different, only different in your mind. You must unlearn what you have learned.